On Friday night, we had a, uh, a service here, good Good Friday service, and uh, most of what I wanted to share today was already shared, so let's skip that. And then uh, Brother Jeremy came up and read Isaiah 53, and that was the other part of what I was going to share, so basically I'm done here. <laughs> Actually, uh, Jeremy only gave me an hour and a half to preach, but then he said, well, you need to cut that down in half to about 45 minutes. So I hope to get on, uh, get in under that. No, actually, we'll, we'll be fairly brief. The story that we know in the scripture regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord comes from the prophets of old as they foretold what was going to be coming. And then it comes from the Gospels themselves. All four of the Gospels record some facet of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death for us some facet of that death, burial, and resurrection story. And we'll be sharing from uh, primarily the book of Matthew. This morning, Matthew 26 and 27. And there's also uh, other aspects I want to go ahead and look at. um, uh, Probably uh, Mark, maybe Luke. We'll see how that goes. The story of the suffering servant, some of which... Was, uh, was read to us just a little bit ago, comes from Isaiah 53, where it talks about the things that were just read there, how he had, um, had been despised and rejected of men and so forth. It begins, Isaiah 53, Who hath believed our message? And to whom hath the arm of Jehovah been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. And he hath neither form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And yet it says, he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces and was despised. And we esteemed him not. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it is like to go through your life knowing that you were the only person ever born with the intent on dying. No one else was ever created for the purpose of dying. Jesus was. Jesus was born and his purpose was to die. But that death was a uh, substitutionary death. It was for you. It was for me. It was so that we would not have to die the kind of death and separation and suffer the sorrows that he did. It was that reason that our Lord came. Now, you know, this story is very hard to comprehend. The story of the suffering servant was incomprehensible to the Jews where that Isaiah prophesied to them. What? What are you talking about? Our Lord will come and he'll reign and he'll vindicate us. His people, remember he chose us. We are the chosen nation of of the Lord. He has given to us this power. He'll vindicate us. He'll show us his kingdom. That's what they expected from Jesus. Not one, or from the the one that was going to come. The Messiah. They didn't expect anyone like, like this. Lowly. One who would come in riding on a donkey rather than on a a great white or black, beautiful, powerful horse. No. He didn't do anything like what was expected of him. The ways of God are different than our ways. 
The ways of God are higher than our ways. So then why would he come in this lowly estate? We're thinking he should come up here, and yet he came down here. Why would one who has all the kingdom of heaven want to bring himself to this earth, a place that has been defiled, a place where there was sin and debauchery, decay, stench, all those types of things. And yet he came. He came. So this is a very difficult story to understand. And when I say story, it's a very difficult history to understand. It's a very difficult love of God to understand. You know, the Bible says scarcely for, uh, you know, a good man would somebody, you know, venture to die. You know, you talk about taking a bullet. Remember when they tried to, uh, you know, kill Reagan and what did the Secret Service do? They, you know, ran and jumped in front and so forth. That's what it's called. You know, that's what we think of when we say taking a bullet from somebody. I would die for them. I would do whatever for them. Great, great. But that's a great man. Who would do that for you and I? Except Jesus. The Bible says that he came to us when we were still in the midst of the vilest of offenses. While we are still in our sins, Christ, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, died for us. This story is is hard to understand. And so when you look at the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, there in that 53rd chapter, when he tells us this stuff, try to comprehend it. And as we look at Matthew 26 and 7, we'll see a little bit of what he has to share with us today. And by the way, I don't have time to go line by line on, uh, on everything that was prophesied in Isaiah 53, but I do want to cover a little bit. And so if you're keeping notes, we'll give you a few of the outlined points or some of the highlights. From uh, the, the first point would be he was despised and rejected of men. There in that third verse, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Despised and rejected of men. Then a little bit further. Surely he bore our sorrows. And you see that there in verse 4. And then it says he was wounded or bruised for our iniquities. There in verse 5. And then one extra point. Doesn't necessarily come from Isaiah 53. But I want to come to the conclusion of the story when we look at the crucifixion that it ends with death. It ends with death. Jesus died for our sins. And so that's going to be the last point. And then there's going to be a little something extra here in a little bit. All right. So if we look at this point from verse 3. Looking at it from Isaiah where he says, despised and rejected of men. One of the things we learn from the Gospel of John, there in chapter 1, verse 11, it says that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Our Lord, the Messiah sent from heaven, the promised one to come, the deliverer, the savior of the world, came unto his own, and his own, the Bible says, received him not. Remember, he came to the chosen people of Israel, the Jews. And what happened to him when he came? You saw 
You saw it and you'll see it even more. What about this fellow by the name of Jesus? Excuse me. Excuse me. Fellow by the name of Judas. That's who I wanted to talk about. And in Matthew 26 there, you can take a peek there. In verse 25, Jesus, this, is, this, this particular story comes in the midst of the Last Supper. And Judas, their response to the Lord, he says, you know, one of you is going to go ahead and deny me. And one by one by one, they all kept saying, well, it's not I, it's not I, it's not I, is it? And then Judas says to the Lord, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, yes, it is you. Matthew 26, 25. Well, we know what happens with that. Judas was one of his chosen 12 disciples, and yet one of them would betray me. That's what he said. One of you will betray me. And it turned out to be Judas Iscariot. Now, you know what he did. You know, he felt remorse later on, and he says, you know, gosh, I can't believe it. I've sinned against God. I've betrayed innocent blood. And remember how he tried to give the 30 pieces of silver back? I'm sorry. You know, once you've sinned, you've sinned. And his offering wasn't accepted. So like many, and I was thinking this week, remember the, uh, what was it, the principal aboard the the um, ferry that went down, went to the island where they were intended to uh, be transported to. And then he hung himself or he killed himself. You know, maybe he thought there was, you know, too great a shame. Why should I live when there's so many of the other high school students that aren't alive? I don't know how Judas felt. I don't know if he asked for forgiveness before he died, but he, we do know that he sinned. And he recognized that he sinned. And he knew that he betrayed innocent blood. And then he went out and hung himself. Look at the crowd there. Remember the same crowd that we, we might have thought about, you know, coming on Palm Sunday or, you know, that triumphal entry that we talk about, that, that particular story in the scriptures that begins Holy Week, how they were cheering for Jesus and, you know, great, you know, Hosanna in the highest and so forth as he comes riding on a donkey. Well, just a week later, what do they begin to cry out to him? Look at uh, verse... Well, we could look a little bit later. That You know, I'm not sure we have that much time, so I want to keep moving. But the story is right in there, Matthew 26 and 27. Those same folks that were cheering, later their cheers turned to jeers and they were crying out for what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Remember there was a, a custom that on a, on a holy day like this that they could, you know, say... Give, you know, uh, show a pardon. By the way, our own governor in California, what did he release? 50, 60 people who pardoned them from their their crimes over the, over the holiday? Okay, good custom. We just don't want them to release them back to us, you know, type of thing. But anyway, you remember the story of Barabbas. There is Barabbas. He was a murderer, a reviler, you know, somebody who didn't respect the law, you know, at all. One of the worst sinners. One of the worst offenders. And yet they said, Give us Barabbas rather than Jesus. This Jesus. What do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. Crucify him. And the crowds, you know, got turned in. They were, the fomenting began with the, uh, with some of the religious leaders. 
tell them to crucify him. Tell them to crucify him. What did he ask you? Tell them to crucify him. And then what was the, the sound? Crucify him. Have you ever getting, gotten caught up in mob mentality? That's exactly what was happening. They called for the crucifixion in Jesus of Jesus when he had done nothing. When others might have, mm, you know what, I don't know if I want to get involved or not. They did all those things. So Jesus was despised and rejected by the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. He came into his own and his own received him not. He was also rejected by Judas. Remember the crowd there, how they jeered and, uh, and, and rejected him and so forth. And Pontius Pilate, do you remember that story? Go ahead and turn, if you have your, your passage of Scripture there, Matthew 27, and looking at verses 24 and following. Matthew 27, verses 24 and following. Matthew 27, 24 says, And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, he was trying to convince the crowd, Hey, wait a minute, this man is innocent and all that. But the crowd had already turned to where they were just fomenting and there was not going to be any calming. There was not going to be any, you know, subduing them whatsoever. When he saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Folks, I'm sorry if you're in charge, if you're the leader, you can't just do some figurative, I'm washing my hands, and it's now your responsibility. If you're in charge, you need to do something. You need to lead your people to do what is right. And if he believed in his heart, and remember what his wife told him? Oh man, I've heard in a dream, don't, you know, this man has already troubled me too much, you know, don't have anything to do with him. He's innocent. And Pontius Pilate found no guilt in him either. And yet, he didn't have the guts to stand up. Folks, you and I are no better than Pontius Pilate because if we don't speak up for good, what happens? All that's needed for evil to prevail is for good men to say nothing. Forgive us, Lord. Too many times we've been quiet when we should have been standing up for somebody else. Standing up for what's right. Standing up for our Lord. Remember what he said? If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Never let it be said of us that we were ashamed of our Lord. And yet the Bible prophesied and it came to pass that he was despised and rejected of men. It didn't matter if they were the religious leaders. It didn't matter if it was one of his own Judas. It didn't matter if it was the crowd or the people. And it certainly didn't matter if it was the Roman governor. None of that mattered. He was despised, the Bible says, and rejected of men. Surely he bore our sorrows there, looking at the next verse. When you look at Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, there he is in the Garden of Eden, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he's calling upon his disciples to watch and pray. And, you know, each time he goes, and he goes in to pray, and he tells his disciples, wait here just a little bit, and he goes off. And you, you have these pictures in your mind of Jesus praying, and it, 
he, it says, you know, all these, he, he was down to the point of where he was sweating drops of blood. He was so agonized and caught up in that. That's, uh, where did I say it? it was Matthew 26, verses 36 and following. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, verse 38. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then going a little bit farther, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returns to his disciples and we saw the cycle again repeated and and he, and he finds them. Can Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Verse 40. In verse 41, he tells them again. He admonishes them. Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And you see him in the next verse. My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, if it is not possible, unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then what did he do? He came back and he found his disciples sleeping there. One more time. One more time. Are you still sleeping and resting? Where are you today? Are you still resting and sleeping, or have you awoken to the fact that what Jesus did for us was necessary, and it was for this purpose that He came? And we could ask no greater thing than for someone like this to take what we deserve. His disciples didn't even think of enough of Him to even stay awake. What about you? Well, the Bible also says in Isaiah 53, in that next verse, that he was wounded or he was bruised for our iniquities. When you look at Matthew 26, verses 67, you see there that they spit on his face and they struck him with their fists and others slapped him. And, and then they said, to, uh, prophesy to us. Now they're taunting him. Prophesy to us, Christ. Who hit you? That's what you see with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Then in the next, uh, you see, the, you know, Pilate and the people. They flogged him. They prepped him for for crucifixion. What did the Roman military do? They mocked him. They, you know, put a crown of thorns on him. You know, they acted like he was king. And what did they do? Dressed him in a purple robe and, and all of that. Yeah. And then they, what did they do? They bowed down and they said, hey, you know, hey, wait a minute. You know, they mocked him. They gave him a crown of thorns. Thorns that they stuck on his head. And then they, you know, patted it down to make sure it stuck. They hit him with reeds on top of his head to make sure that he bled. To make sure that he received contusions on the top of his head. They spat on him. They hit him. They stripped him of his robe. And then they led him away to be crucified. Mocking him. Taunting him. Ridiculing him. Psalm 22 gives a little foreshadowing of this. When David is crying out to God, and you remember David was the chosen king of Israel, 
And he was, they said, of his kingdom there will be no end. Yeah. What did David say in Psalm 22 when you first look at it? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Have you ever been in a particular predicament and you think, oh my God, look at it. I'm way out here. I'm all alone. I have nothing. I have no help and whatever. And sometimes we feel like that. Like, hey, wait a minute. Nobody cares. Nobody's here for us. Nobody wants us. But have we forgotten that God God has never taken His eye off of us? That God has never left us alone or forsaken us? That God never will or nor could He because it's contrary to His own nature? My God. My God. Why hast Thou forsaken us? In Matthew 27. Talks about him being led away to be crucified. You saw how they were taunting him. How they mocked him. How they gambled away his clothes. They did all these things. One of the preparatory things that even um, Pontius Pilate had offered to do for them. Hey, wait a minute. You know what? This is what I'm going to do for you. This Jesus that you don't want to let go, tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and beat him and I'm going to tell him to straighten up his act. Is that going to be good enough? No. Crucify him. So what do the Romans do? They flog him anyway. They took that sometimes what it's called in head of nine tails, but you look at ancient Roman flogging. And there's, these are little braided straps of leather. Several different lengths. And the flogging position would be where your hands are tied above your head. Where your back is exposed. Your butt is exposed. Your legs are exposed. And they struck you as much as they felt you needed. These who were the tormentors of Jesus took their leather straps, some of them tied with iron balls at the end, some of them tied with, you know, little um, uh, sheep bones that were sharp. So you have the iron balls as you're getting that flogged would cause deep contusions and you have the sheep bones with their sharp edges that would rip out flesh. As the flogging continues. One whack. Nine rips. Or nine contusions. Two whacks. And sometimes they had people that not only did it at different levels. Sometimes they had different people doing it. A couple of people. One. And then the other. One. And then the other. Can you imagine the trauma that that one human body had to face. There it is. His body is complete with contusions all along his back. His body beginning to bleed the backside, not only from the straps, but from the tearing, uh, the flesh tearing from ripping it out with the bones that were plucking the meat off his body. 
and as he's oozing, and as he's bleeding, and as he's nearly unconscious for, from the pain. That's when they take him to be crucified. After that, they take him to be crucified. So now you see, he's walking, and they made him carry his own cross. And we're not talking about the little type of cross that we wear on our necklace or we hang on our, you know, whatever, our, uh, in our car. We're talking about a, a cross that's big enough to hold up a full-grown man and to hold him up not just to figuratively keep him off the ground, but to hold him up high enough so that people would know that this one has gone against the Roman authority, that this one is an insurrectionist, that this one is a reviler, that this one is a murderer, that this one is so disgusting, we want to do to him what is the most oppressive. And so they would make it high. And so this cross was more than his own height. Greater than his height. Because when they stuck it in the ground, they also wanted him still to be high enough up so that others could see him. So he's carrying that tremendous weight after his body has endured such excruciating pain. And he has to suffer with that hard wood and the weight and no one to help. Finally, it got so much for him. You saw how... Another slave man was enlisted, you know, Simon the Cyrene, who was enlisted to help him. But that was only because they wanted to take him all the way to the cross. They didn't want him to die right there on the road. That was the only reason. They didn't show pity on him. There was no pity there. He was going to go. He was going to be offended. He was going to be shown to be what he was, the most disgraceful and most, you know, disgusting and dreaded uh, you know, individual that there was around. And that's what they wanted to show that day with him. After the flogging came the crucifixion. And the crucifixion was the most degrading, most humiliating, most uh, disgraceful, and by the way, dreaded form of death that anybody in that day and time could have undergone. You can imagine his hands. And I know traditionally we see it in some of the photos or maybe some of the um, statues and so forth that it was in his hands, but that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to hold up a, an entire human man's body. That would have ripped right through. So in all likelihood, it was between the two rows of metatarsals or maybe even in the higher up on the wrist where all the ligaments would have helped hold it. And that could have sustained the weight of this man. So he's got one here, one here. And it wasn't taunt, it was a little bit loose. And now what does he have? Oh, even before that, I should say. Even before that, his body, wretched as it was, torn as it was, open and oozing and leaking blood as it was, was thrown to the ground so he could lay down where they could do this to him. And then what happens? After they have his arms, then they do his feet. And his feet also were not at the ends. It was way, way up here where there was still plenty to be able to hold on to. And being placed on top of each other and bent at a little bit of an angle. There's no, there's no rest. There's no break. There's no foot rest, by the way, I've seen on some of the crosses. 
There was none of that. There was only pain. There was only torment. It was never intended to be comfortable or be uh, like some of our death penalty, uh, 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 what do you call them, not death penalty advocates, but the uh, adversaries, I shall say. Those, they, all, they always want, what, something that's humanitarian. I'm sorry, there is nothing humanitarian about ancient Roman flogging. There's nothing humanitarian taking somebody and crucifying and mutilating a body like that. There's nothing humanitarian whatsoever about it. It was meant to send a signal of fear if you mess with the Roman Empire that this is what is in store for you. And by the way, this is what we deserve. We don't understand it, but that's what we learn. This suffering servant that was prophesied in Isaiah came so that he might be our propitiation, our substitution, our Savior. He was doing it for us. He didn't need to. Remember, he lived a perfected life. He came to mankind to show us the way back to God. And the only way he could do that was by living a perfect human life in the flesh and showing that it was possible. And this is what he endured for us. So then... What would they do then? This crucifixion was agonizing. It was tormenting. And he's trying to get air. But each time, you know, you try to get air, what are you doing? You're pressing on your feet that have just been, you know, just been nailed to a cross. And so that's causing you pain. But then when you go back, now you have the pain on your hands. And, and you're trying to breathe and your chest is caving in. And what happens? You're getting exhausted. And the asphyxiation is setting in. And eventually you either die from exhaustion asphyxiation or you die from the pain or you die from just passing out. It's something your heart will just give up. All of that he endured for us, folks. For us. He did it for us. Why would someone do that for us? One of the robbers said to the other, don't you fear God? And he said, Jesus, remember me. Luke said, Luke 23, verse 43, say, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Well, what happens? What happens? Jesus promised them something. When he cried out, you know, here we have darkness covering the whole earth from about the sixth hour to the ninth hour. In other words, from about... Uh, Noon to about three in the afternoon. Darkness came over the whole land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Or in Hebrew, if you pronounce it that way. Eli, Eli, lema shabachthani. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? We talked about him being despised and rejected of men. He was also Rejected of God. God. Even though Jesus was God and man. I told you it's going to be hard to understand. Even though Jesus was God and man. God can have nothing to do with sin. At the point in time when Jesus took upon himself the sins of the whole world. He felt the separation from God. And that's why you hear. Eli, Eli, Lama Shabbatani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew what it was like. 
to be even rejected by his father. Terrible thing, this crucifixion. Terrible thing, this sin. But it's not all bad news. The Bible says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. The Bible also said, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And when he was crucified, when he was, when he gave up his last, when he cried out his last voice, the Roman centurion, captain, if you will, of the Roman army, said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Brother Jeremy. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 28, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 6. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. You know, the weekend that the Lord was crucified was, for Jesus' followers, a weekend full of grief, as you all could imagine. I mean, their leader, their teacher whom they had given three years of their lives to, was dead. But not only did he die, but he died a criminal's death. So there was shame here in the death of Jesus Christ. And so they were sad. They were without hope. I mean, you can imagine what it would be like to lose a loved one. I'm sure many of you guys have lost loved ones. And you know the sadness that accompanies death. And these folks, just as Pastor Rick said, they had laid their hope in this man. And yet he laid in the ground. And so in doing so, he took their hopes to the ground with them. Or so they had thought. And our pastor says that around dawn on Sunday, so after the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, so around dawn on the Sabbath day, or sorry, on Sunday, the two ladies, both named Mary, they go to the tomb with spices in their hands, according to the Gospel of Mark, that's what it says, to further embalm the body of Jesus. And they, they were assuming that someone would let them in to roll the stone away so that they would continue on this process of seeing that this dead man is laid to rest appropriately. And while they go to see the tomb, which is what Matthew says, uh, they end up seeing so much more than what they anticipated. And this is what it says. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And of course, this appearance here is just like all the other angelic appearances. When God sends a divine messenger to appear to the people, they get, they're fearful. Many times, you know, people are falling on their faces. And here the Marys are terrified. And the angel says, do not be afraid. 
For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. But it isn't only what they see that astounds them. It's what they hear that astounds them. And this here should astound us as well because in this divine announcement, this proclamation, the contents of the sentence here, that those contents there, the truths, secure the Christian's hope. And holds out to Christian, to non-Christians, a strong hope. The truths revealed in this divine announcement is the reason why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. The angel says, and hear it again as if you're hearing it for the first time, as if you are in the Mary's position, saddened, carrying on the process of death, mourning. The angel says, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. So in that moment, their depression is turned to joy, right? Their hopelessness is immediately turned to hope. In the empty tomb. And there you have the angel who, who, at least as I read it, it seems to suggest, at least with my modern eyes, I don't know if it's actually in the text, but he's sitting on the tomb. He's like, I got this. (laughs) I rolled it away. I got this. He isn't here. For he has risen, as he said. You know, the empty tomb is a fact that people have wrestled with throughout history ever since its occurrence. And many people, not happy with scripture, they come up with, alternative explanations and they might say he was not there because he never really died and this is a this is called the swoon theory the swoon theory he was not there because he never really died Uh, this theory says that jesus never really died and what happened was that jesus was placed into the tomb but he really wasn't dead he was just in shock after all experiencing all of that And then after being laid to rest in this nice, uh, cozy tomb, uh, you know, where the cool air sort of revived him, he comes back, he awakens, he tears off the burial linens, he moves the rock that sealed the tomb. There's lots of problems with this theory. Lots of problems with this theory. For number one, one, you've got the mangled body problem, right? I mean, we heard of the suffering that they went through. That Jesus went through. He survived a vicious beating, brutal whippings, nails through his appendages. He gets pierced through his side. And then after all of that, these people just sort of suggest that, you know, after surviving all of that torture, after not eating for three days, he awakes and gets on those nail-pierced feet. You know, if you've ever suffered any injury on the bottoms of your feet or even the palms of your hand, you know that to do anything with your hands or your feet is extraordinarily painful so the problem is okay how 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 do you explain that jesus sort of arose with the problems of his feet and his hands and then moved this massive this massive uh stone that guarded the tomb i mean there's the boulder problem you have this man pushing against the stone that was designed to be moved from the outside only and somehow he manages to shove across this uh one to two ton boulder and then you've got the soldier problem. Like, you would figure that the soldiers would catch on. You know, their boulder that they're guarding is slowly rolling away, and they're not prepared. They're caught off guard. The swoon theory is a fictional story. The eyewitness accounts, though, they clearly report that Jesus was dead before he was placed into the tomb. So tradition was, in a crucifixion, that you would break the legs of the person hanging... So that they therefore would suffocate. 
because that's what's holding up their weight. They push up. Pastor Rick was illustrating to take a breath. But Jesus was already dead. And the leaders, the authorities make sure of that. And so then they therefore place him into the tomb. That's a swoon theory. It doesn't make sense. Other people not happy with the eyewitness accounts. They also say something like uh, he was not there because his disciples stole his body away. He was not there because his disciples stole the body away. Now, at first glance, we might say, yeah, that kind of works. That seems to make sense. Uh, but this actually creates more problems. So, so first, the disciples have to go against the Romans, which ruled the entire land to get Jesus' body out, right? So there you think, okay, clearly they got to be really brave to go and do this. They're just like a little band of guys, and they're going to take on the Roman government, the emperor. One of the problems is that, you know, you, you sit there and you wonder where all this bravery come from. Because the eyewitness scripture accounts, they actually report that the disciples were somewhat cowardly. So you can think of Peter, right? A little girl asking, weren't you with Jesus? And he takes off running to a little girl. All of a sudden, Peter gathers up the uh, the strength and the courage to go against the Roman government. When Jesus is arrested, when Judas leaves them, they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They flee because apparently these soldiers here are going to come and arrest Jesus. So where did this bravery come from? Not only that, though. You got to think about the origins of Christianity. They then become illogical. So, so, so let's say let's say the apostles, you know, they do manage to, to gather up the courage and they steal away Jesus's body. And then they say, hey, you know what? Jesus is clearly dead. So let's go ahead and continue uh, these lies. And we're going to write scripture all about it for not only one year, but many years. And we're going to stick to it, all of us. And then, and then we're going to get more disciples. And assuming, you know, those are all Jews who are in the area, you know, they don't really know that Jesus really, truly died. They say, we're just going to continue spreading these lies. And then not only do they do it for one year, but they do it for two years. And they do it for three years. And they do it for a decade. Stephen is killed, martyred for the faith, another one. And they continue doing it. And then the apostles, one by one by one, all die for their faith. The only one left is John, who's isolated on an island all by himself. And he just says, yeah, you know what? This is a really good cause that I'm going to continue, even though I'm all by myself. And I'm going to continue this vision that I have about Jesus dying and resurrecting and dying for the sins of men. The origins of Christianity would be absolutely illogical. But here we can trust amidst all these different theories, these two theories, for example, the swoon theory and then the disciples stole the body of Jesus theory. We can know the truth. We can know the truth because scripture here is trustworthy. This theory that the disciples stole the body theory. I mean, we can understand why it's present even to this day. So go ahead and look at Matthew 28 verse 11. This is a theory that the Jews come up with. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So here they're bribing these soldiers here to continue on this so-called myth that the Jews are conjuring up. They're seeking counsel. They're gathering together. They're wanting to snuff out the name of Christ 
as we see that that's what they were doing in the book of Acts. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Even then, the day of, it would seem, of Jesus' resurrection here, we have a lie about what actually happened. A lie about why the tomb is empty. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, you know, just logically here, this empty tomb is something that you need to wrestle with. The truth of the empty tomb. What do you say happened? Everybody agrees, if they want to be faithful in dealing with history, that Jesus lived and that he died. And non-Christian sources will go ahead and cite, and they do cite, that this Jesus lived and he died and that there are even apostles who say that he came back to life. So the empty tomb is lies before you. What do you say happened in the empty tomb? Amidst all these theories, we can be sure, according to Scripture, because this is revealed by God who never lies but always tells the truth. And the divine messenger says, he is not here. Not because he never really died. Not because the disciples really stole his body. But because he has risen. Uh, And it says specifically in Matthew 28, verse 7, from the dead. How much clearer can it get? He has risen from the dead. You know, I remember one time... um, going to uh seminary school and and this one time seminary school is where you get trained to be a pastor for those who want to pursue it in that direction you don't need to go to seminary school to be a pastor but i went there and one of the guys who was there denied the resurrection of jesus and so he he just he just straight up admitted that i don't really believe this and then i was asking him, well what in what sense do you call yourself a christian and he ended up saying, well, actually, you know, I just, I'm just Christian by name at this point in time. I don't really believe these truths. So I just said, okay, well, let's just go ahead and walk through the claims of Christ according to Scripture. And we were studying what we were studying this morning in our Sunday school class, the claims of Christ according to uh, Scripture. And he read the Bible. He was familiar with it. But the truth of this resurrection that, that is plainly obvious here in Scripture, he, it just didn't sit right with him. And he said almost in frustration, why does it say over and over again that it, that he rose from the dead? And I just answered plainly, you know, it seems it's they're writing so plainly, the biblical authors here, because they are bent on communicating the fact that he was dead, but he is no longer dead. And so he had risen from the dead. He read scripture and he had wished that it said something else. Because it just so plainly says, Jesus got up from the dead. So because he knew that he knew that if it were true, if he knew really that Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity would be something entirely different from what he had thought it would be. His profession of faith, his so-called following the Lord would be something so incredibly different. He knew that Jesus would impose all of these other things on his life because that was the game changer for him why does it say over and over again he got up from the dead imagine what would happen if jesus stayed dead your guys knowledge of the gospel what would happen if jesus stayed dead you know this miracle of the resurrection certainly is a miracle but it is a miracle with meaning here 
It's a miracle with meaning. The resurrection is the authenticating work that confirms the claims of Jesus. That's the authenticating work that that confirms the claims of Christ. If he remained dead, then you can nullify everything that he lived for. Everything that he ever preached for and preached about is nullified if he remained in the grave. But if he rose from the dead, that's the game changer. If Christ stayed dead, then sin, the effects of sin, would reign over God, right? The gospel is that God created man to be in a perfect relationship with him. We owe everything we are to him. We need to honor him, glorify him, live to the praise of his glory. But we rebelled. Adam and Eve, they rebelled. And in so doing, they earned for themselves and for all guilty men, that is all of us, the punishment of death, even the punishment in hell. Death then, from Adam and Eve's sin, reigned over man. So if you've ever experienced a loved one, or if your body is heading towards death, that's a result of sin. If Christ laid in the grave forever, God's power would be nothing. If Christ stayed dead, then sin and death reign over God. It would be the equivalent of Satan sort of planting the flag over the tomb of Jesus and declaring victory. My sin that I introduced into the world, the sin that we all are guilty of, reigns over us. But in order to loosen the chains of death, in order to defeat sin, death, and Satan, God raised Jesus from the dead. Death is defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Payment for sins is completed. So where we deserve to die, Christ comes on his own free will for the joy set before him, as Pastor Rick read. In desiring to honor the Father, he arrives and bears the wrath, the sin, and the judgment that we deserved. So that the guilty would be free. The righteous comes to die for the unrighteous. So that the wicked people would be reconciled to God. All of that in love. And so just as death no longer has mastery over Jesus, so death no longer has mastery over the Christian. And that's our hope here. On the cross, Christ paid for your debts. And in his resurrection, God shows that Christ's sacrifice was enough. That payment was accepted. That what God has done is enough. And now now we who repent and believe, we don't need to suffer eternal death eternal hell instead we are reconciled to god we are justified counted righteous as i was praying this morning um you know i was reading this book of prayers called the valley of vision and making those prayers my prayers i found i find it really helpful and there the prayer that i was going through was about the resurrection and he was talking about how the resurrection is proof proof to everyone that the offering of atonement is accepted That justice is satisfied. That the devil's scepter is shriveled. That his wrongful throne is leveled. And because of the resurrection, we now have great assurance that in Christ, I died with him to sin. And in Christ, I am raised to new life with him just as he rose. And so those of us who repent and believe, we, those of us who have turned from our sins and trust in Jesus, you know, we certainly follow in his train. We will certainly taste death for a little bit. 
we go into the grave for a time. But because of Christ, we are raised from it for the rest of time. And now, because of the resurrection, nothing can accuse us. We look back, those of us who have repented and believed and who are following Christ, we see our sins, and they once dogged us, as we understand what a guilty conscience is and what shame looks like. They, they once chased us, but not anymore. Nothing can accuse us. Romans 8, 33 and 34, it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Can anything touch us now that we are in Christ? Any of those sins that we wrestle with, death and Satan himself, who can bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God currently, presently, and who indeed is interceding for us. And Christ, as he rose from the dead, as he took that first breath, as he did in fact tear off his burial linens and walked out of the tomb, he then ascended into heaven where he intercedes for sinners on behalf of guilty people before his righteous God. And now God sees us, Christians, as righteous. And all of this he has done just as he said. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. You know, certainly what ought to make us believe in Christ is God's great power to uh, take care and vanquish Satan. For Jesus to, to take upon himself the wrath and the sins that we deserved. And certainly we ought to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. And yes, certainly we ought to believe in the gospel because he accomplished it just as he said. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Jesus' resurrection was something that God purposed from the beginning. Just as the incarnation and the crucifixion were part of God's plan, so was raising Jesus from the dead. And what secures our, our salvation, what grants us a living hope, is not only the crucifixion, but his resurrection as well. And this is something that Christ himself spoke of. This is all God's plan to save sinners. So in Luke 24, 44, this is what it reads. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so there, when he, when he speaks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's speaking about the whole entire Old Testament. All of that points to Jesus and is fulfilled in me. And then it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You see that there? If you're here again, you're visiting with us and you want to know more about the purpose, the reason for the crucifixion, the reason for the resurrection. The answer that is there in Luke 24, 44. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to the nations. Forgiveness of sins to the nations because of Christ's death and then his resurrection. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ good news. The fact that because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have our sins wiped away. We can be pardoned and we can be forgiven. 
The question is, have you believed? You know, a lot of people on Easter Day, they come, think, they come to church and what's on their mind is death. But I actually want to push back that what ought to be on your mind is not death, but the one who holds the power over death. If you're here today and you're, you're, you're concerned about, you, you know, you think the Christians talk about the resurrection, which we do, and really what that is, is merely Jesus championing over death, that isn't it. Easter speaks so much more than that. Resurrection Sunday speaks so much more than that. God ultimately holds the keys over death, which is why he sends Jesus to die on the cross and get up from the dead. Because in it, he defeats Satan himself. Now, if you're visiting with us today, it's Satan that you should be concerned about. You want to track your evil and the the evil things that you do, even if you sin by lying or stealing, you trace that back to Satan and your evil hearts. Satan and your evil hearts. And that's the problem that Resurrection Sunday takes care of in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ bore the sins of his people on himself and the wrath that he deserves so that people who repent and believe should have new life. And now we say, just as 1 Corinthians 15 says, go ahead and turn there. First Corinthians 15 verses 54 and 55. And Paul is encouraging people to think about the return of Jesus when all of us will be raised from our graves. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, that is when we are raised from the dead because of Christ's coming, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There when he speaks about death, he's not merely talking about a physical death. He's talking about an eternal death. An eternal death that we all can escape because of God's grace and mercy who has made a way out through the blood of his son. Who defeats sin, death, and Satan himself. Why would you not want to fly to Jesus Christ who delivers sinners from eternal death? You know, the gospel, a wonderful picture of the gospel is uh, the act of baptism. And in the act of baptism, according to Romans 6, it says there that sinners are united to Jesus because Christ and God loves us and we love him. We are united to him. And so just as he goes down into the ground, so the sinner who has been united to Christ goes down into the grave as well. And so we are, we are said to, be, to die to sin because of Christ. But just as he comes out of the tomb, so Christians come out of the grave, out of the water. And it says there that we are to live a new life because Christ was raised from the dead and he currently lives a new life. And so today we finish off the service celebrating three baptisms. That is three people who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have repented and believed and who are now walking according to Christ. Uh, And as you hear their testimonies, I encourage you to repent and believe as these three folks have done. And so now as the music team comes up to lead, uh, a number of us will go. We're going to go get changed and then we'll go ahead and celebrate the baptisms.